Good to see everybody this morning. I'm Ed Glaze, one of the pastors here at Boone United Methodist Church, and it's an honor and privilege to be before you uh, this day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we come before you knowing that you're a God of grace, a grace that uh, enables us to be in right relation to you, a grace that surrounds us no matter where we are, a grace that wants to change us, to make us more like you. Grateful, God, for the gifts that you have given to us through your grace. May we always respond to that grace so that your love is made known through the ministries of this church and by each and every one of us. Ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. For those of you that are in the building, I know there's some tuning in online, and if you have a United Methodist hymnal at home, well, I encourage you to pull out and y'all in. The building here, old school, find a hymnal, turn to page 384, and just hold your finger there. We're going we're to get to that in just a little while. Uh, yes, a hymnal. Yeah, we, I know we don't get into those that often in this service, but we, we uh, are dealing with, well, this subject of grace. We're in the third week of a series of sermons entitled, A Grace-Charged World. A Grace-Charged World. We, in our United Methodist tradition, lead with this concept of God's grace that we do not need to come before God with fear. That's what we're going to be talking about a lot today. But we come knowing that God surrounds us with grace and invites us to a relationship and a life that's abundantly eternal. Now, a lot of people put emphasis on that life eternal. And that is good news. I mean, to know that beyond this life, there is life that will go on forever and ever and ever. It's something more wondrous than anything that we can experience on this earth. And that colors our perspective of everything. That gives us a, a concept that, you know, what happens in this life is fading, no matter what the bad stuff is or how good stuff is, that life eternal in heaven is something that awaits us, as the Apostle Paul says in First uh, or Second Corinthians two. He says this: that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can comprehend what awaits those who love God. I mean, we have in that to anticipate. But what we believe in our understanding of God's grace is that grace is just not a pathway of. To heaven, grace is a way of life that ushers us into heaven beginning here on earth. And so we say that grace is for the here and the now. And so as we talk about grace this week, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture uh, from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, starting with verse 17. It's going to be on, on the screen for you. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I just think I heard a song about that. Thank you, praise band, as always. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, and let me turn off that alarm that reminds me to pray for a revival. Yes, 
we are here now talking about this concept, this third aspect of this grace that, that John Wesley talks about and what is called sanctifying grace. Remember first week we talked about prevenient grace surrounding us. Next week we talked about uh, this justifying grace. And this week we're talking about sanctifying grace. And, and Vern and I, believe it or not, talk about the sermons lots of times before we uh, preach these things. We said, where's God leading you on this? And, and where, where should we go with that? And what point are you talking about? What illustration are you going to do? And have you got a good joke to go along with this? And, you know, th- that type of stuff. And we talked about sanctifying grace And Vern said this, he said, you know, Ed, this is a whole series of sermons talking about sanctifying grace. And he's right, so how much time do we have? How much time y'all got today? I mean, we can be here a long time. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Brian. So uh, hold on to your seats, y'all. This is going to be a long, long sermon. Not really. This is going to be about the average length. The next two weeks, we're going to impact more sanctifying grace. I mean, we talk about personal holiness, and then we're going to talk about uh, living a life of holiness in the world, how grace helps us change the world. But this week we're talking about this sanctifying grace, this grace that is working to change us. And the scripture text for this morning reveals to us the goal of what grace is about. It is to reveal the glory of God in us with unveiled faces. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and it's a long letter, and uh, actually there's two letters, but actually if you really dig into it, there's lots of letters there, but we won't get into the biblical scholarship about that. But Paul's writing to this fractured church, and he tells them the story of Moses, and this is what the the goal of a Christian life is like, he's saying. You know, Moses, who went up uh, to Mount Sinai to meet with God, and to have the law revealed to, to him so that he could bring it to the people. And he spent so much time up there that the glory of the Lord was reflected in his face. I mean, he shone so brightly, the people said, we can't stand seeing you, Moses. You're just too bright. It's kind of like looking up at these lights up here. I mean, it's too bright. So they had to put a veil on his face because he shone so brightly the glory of the Lord. And there's an interesting line that is written in Exodus 33, about this encounter that God has with Moses. It says that God and Moses spoke as friend to friend. Friend to friend. Moses spoke to God as friend to friend. The glory of the Lord shone through this one who was so close to God that they were friends. Well, the work of Christ is for us to have this veil between God and us torn asunder, to be removed. We talked about last week how in Matthew's gospel at the, at the crucifixion that the t- temple curtain was ripped in two so that one did not have anything that kept one from going into the holiest place where God was, that we had direct access to God. We had this veil removed, and we, because this veil has been removed, have this great benefit of having a friendship with God, being able to go to God with with unveiled faces, revealing the glory of God through who we are in Jesus Christ. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, may your light shine before others so that they may see your good work and give glory to your Father in heaven, revealing the glory of a God 
through our loving works in the world. The problem is that, well, our image has been distorted. And there's a veil between us because of our sinfulness. I want the original intent. The original intent was for us to reveal who God was by who we are. You might remember from the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, it says this, let us, the Holy Trinity, create them, male and female, human beings, in our image. In our image, let us make them. We are to image who God is by the way we walk and live in this world. But as I said a moment ago, in our Wesleyan understanding of this image of God, it has been distorted by our sinfulness and the effects of sin of the world on our lives. A distortion of that image that God first designed us to be, what we were born to be as individuals and as a human race. Now, I don't know if they still have these at the carnivals. I haven't been to a carnival in a while. I haven't been to amusement park in a while either. I guess I'm getting a little old for that, though I do like to go and have the, well, you know, the hot dogs that they serve there. But I, I, had, I hadn't been in a carnival in a, in a long time. But I remember at the carnivals, and some of you all might remember this, those, those House of Mirrors. You remember those things? Any of you all remember those? Yeah, yeah. They, do they still have those? Right, you know, young people, do they still have those at the carnivals? You, you know, Brian's a young person. He said, oh, yeah, I've been to those. Yeah, yeah. You, you might remember that when you go to the House of Mirrors, there, you walk in and there's these funny distorted images of yourselves, and it's kind of funny to see your head puffed up like a balloon or elongated like a banana or stretched way out like a giraffe. I mean, we can kind of laugh at that, but it's no laughing matter when the image of who we are created in God's image has been distorted by our own sinfulness or warped by the effects of sin in the world. And what Christ came to do is to restore that image that God originally intended from the beginning of creation so that we reflect beautifully who God is in the world. That's what Christ came to do, to restore that image of who we're intended to be, to take away that veil between us and the glory of God so that God's glory is revealed through us. And this process is called holiness, being sanctified, to be made holy. Now, that has a bad connotation in our society. You know, that word holy, you know, we hear the words holier than thou. And some of y'all might remember from Saturday Night Live a long time ago. Yeah, I did watch that show. Dana Carvey uh, was playing the church lady and holy people were sanctimonious and judgmental. I mean, that's what we get when we view this image of holiness. I mean, you're a holy roller. But we who are followers of Christ are to be holy. We are to grow in our holiness. As it says in 1 Peter, the one who made you and called you is holy. Therefore, in all we do, we are to be holy because it says, you are to be holy as I am holy. That's what we believe uh, this grace does to us. It makes us more holy in this process of learning to love as God loves, to, to reflect his glory into the world. 
It's something that happens in the here and the now. It is something that we're changed from glory into glory. Now that's where we're going to open up our hymnals. Kathy, this is, I told you to wake up when I started talking about holiness. Yeah, in this wonderful hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, and if you want to know a lot about our theology, thumb through the hymnals sometime and look at some of these Charles Wesley hymns. We're going to sing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lead you. Kathy's going to lead us. And singing this last verse, Make sure you're awake and that you're breathing still. This last verse of love divine, all love's excelling, okay? So, Kathy, start us off. It's all listening. Patty, I said, hold your, I said, get your, yeah, get your thumb on page 384. Okay. isn't about going to heaven, though it's there near the end. Look at that. Change from glory into glory in this life. Glory revealed in this life until in heaven we take our place, lost in wonder, love, and praise. But what's it mean to reveal glory? That first line talks about Jesus. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Being like Jesus with pure unbounded love. Unbounded love, I mean, that's an, that's an interesting concept. And putting our, our way of thinking is maybe that it's a love that is wider than any ocean, higher than any mountain, deeper than any sea. It's eternally stretching out forever. Love that's unbounded, that frees us from the fear that entered into the human condition when we, well, humans sinned. You might recall when Adam and Eve were there in the garden and Eve got that apple and stuffed it down Adam's mouth. That's not really what happened. But when they, when they, when they both, I mean, yeah, you know, you women know. You know, you know what happened? What happened is that they became afraid of God. They hid, didn't they? And as we grow in this process of love, well, that fear is removed from us. That fear is removed from us. And we learn to love because, as Paul says in Galatians 5, it's all about faith being expressed in love, learning to love as Jesus loves, learning to grow in this grace that enables God to have his glory revealed and reflected in us, his glory and his love reflected in us. 
A lot of deep stuff, isn't it? I haven't told too many stories yet. But yeah, that's what this grace does for us. It moves in us. It transforms us. It works in us so that love is revealed and glory of God is made known. Let's get back to this original image that we started out with when we talked about grace. And now some of y'all haven't seen all of this or heard all of this. So we'll go back to Wesley's original image of what grace, this grace that moves in our life is like. He used the image of a house. And the prevenient grace, that grace that surrounds us, that grace that is there before we're even aware of it, this grace that is an entryway into this relationship with God, he called the porch, the porch of the house. It is proximity, but does not equate relationship. It's a grace like uh, the Amazon man leaving a package on the door of your house. There the porch. It, you know, there, there's somebody there. That you're, you're standing out front, but you're not in relationship with the householder. Okay, so there's that grace, or it's the same grace, but we haven't actually entered into a relationship. And then we talked about last week justifying grace. And some of y'all might remember that that moment when we say, okay, I want to enter into a relationship with this householder, this one, this gracious person who owns this place. When we walk through that door, that is that moment where we are made right with God. But the problem is, as I said it from the beginning of this, so many people, that's all they see grace as, is that it's this getting right with God that I have this bus ticket now to heaven and I want to stay there in the entryway to this relationship with God and I don't want to go any further. Because, well, you know, this is what it's all about, right? Getting to heaven. Well, Wesley, and I believe most of the New Testament would say that's not really a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. What C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, when we enter into this relationship with God, we're there in the hallway, and that's not where we're supposed to stay, is it? Think about when you go to somebody's house. You don't just stand in the hallway, do you? You, don't, you just don't stand in the entryway unless you're there delivering a package or trying to sell something. No, you go in. And Lewis says that you go into one of the rooms and you sit at the fireplace and you start to have conversation. That's what it's all about, right? But we're hesitant, aren't we? We're kind of scared, aren't we, about what this house might be like. You think about as a kid going into a new house for, for the very first time. You know, well, oh, this house seems kind of scary. I'm gonna, what's all this weird stuff? I, you know, I don't know about going further in here. What is, this, what is this lady like? What's this fellow like? There's a little hesitancy, right? There's some fear there. There's fear that we are entering into something strange and something different, and we don't want to let go. There's fear that, you know, as we get closer into this relationship with the person who owns this house, that, well, he's going to find out about me, and there's some things there I don't want to be found out about. As we start having conversation together, we begin to worry about what might be revealed. And we might also, through our brokenness in life, not trust this householder. We might not trust this divine stranger because, well, 
Life sometimes is hard. Sometimes there's brokenness. There's tragedy. There's questions. God, do I really trust you? Are you truly good? Are you someone that wants the best for me? Are you someone that I really can call on to be my friend? Can we dare to go deeper into the house? Can we trust enough to be as Moses was with God, friend to friend? Well, you know this about me, I think, that I listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, you've heard me talk about that. Don't get too judgy on me. I do it while I exercise. I'm not just sitting around listening to podcasts. And I'm trying to learn something. And my wife loves it now because she knows that, hey, hon, I've got some housework for you to do. I put those earbuds in and I begin to dust and I vacuum and, you know, I, I begin to do dishes and do all sorts of make the bed, you know, because, oh, hey, I get to listen to podcasts. No problem, hon. You know, so wives, want to get your husbands to work? Buy them some earbuds, send them off, you know, there you go, go listen to, listen to something, you know, you, you can have a great old time. Now, if you're using power tools, fellas, I wouldn't recommend this. You don't want to be too distracted with that saw going, uh, so you're listening to something kind of interesting. But I, I listen to a lot of a podcasts. Some of them are religious, some of them are not. I, you know, I like history. And, I, and one of my favorite history podcasts the other day, I was listening to one that was entitled England's Schindler. England Schindler. You, now, you all probably remember Schindler's List, where Oscar Schindler was this German industrialist that saved over 1,200 Jewish lives during World War II. And you all might remember that movie, great, great movie. Well, there was an English fellow named Nicholas Winton who saved the lives of 600 or more children in Nazi Germany before the, the war started. Because, you know, prior to World War II, the German Jews were oppressed by the Nazis. They were forced out of their homes. They were forced out of their businesses. Some were sent off to concentration camps. It, it was terrible. And Nicholas went and saw what was going on. And working with some sympathetic Germans, he got out over 600 German children and brought them to the U.K., and on this podcast, they were interviewing some of these that had been rescued by Nicholas Winton. Now, they were now in their 90s, but they were telling stories about what it was like to leave Nazi Germany and come to, the, to Great Britain. And they talked about their parents that they left behind. Most of the parents ended up being murdered by the Nazis. How sad was that? But they began to talk about the change that they experienced when they got to this place of safety where they were welcome, even though that they were Jewish. But they still had this lingering doubt about the people there. And one fellow telling the story of being in Great Britain for not too long, he was a teenager, and a bunch of these teenage German Jews were there uh, on a street corner and a British bobby, a British policeman approached him and some of the boys started to run and the bobby started chasing after him and, and wrangled him up and he talked to this one who knew English and said, why are these lads running? Where are they going? And the fella responded back to the policeman's question and said, well, sir, you see, in Germany, in Germany, we Jews are scared of the police because they would beat us and arrest us 
and mistreat us. And so when you showed up, some of us naturally ran. And then the man telling the story got emotional when he recalled what happened over 70 years ago. He recalls that this kind-hearted Bobby, with tears in his eyes, said, Oh, lads, you have nothing to fear from us. We policemen here are your friends. You have nothing to fear from us. And a week later, that policeman and some of his mates brought sweets to these boys to let them know that they had nothing to fear. That these policemen, these ones that they thought they had to be afraid of, they're their friends. My friends, we who sometimes are so afraid of this God who's so much greater than us, worry about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, wonder if we can trust in God. Well, he says, you have nothing to fear. You're our friends. And I say this because if statistics are true from a survey done, it was over a decade ago, but I think it's still old true, that most Americans, particularly most American men, men in here, any men? Yeah, okay, there, there are a few of us. Most of us men see God as wrathful and fearful, and we should be afraid of God, or God's judgmental. Most other Americans see God as distant and not someone that we can turn to or trust. Hmm. But what God longs for us in the work of grace is to be able to trust in God and like Moses, see God as a friend. Letting the work of grace in our life transform us to remove our fearfulness to remove this fact that we might have this, this distrust and to let the work of grace in our lives transform us so that the love of God is revealed in us and that the glory of the Lord shines through us like heaven has come to earth. That's what the work of grace, this sanctifying grace does, is remove the fear, take away those things within us that would cause us not to trust and see God as a friend. Yeah, a friend that's much greater than we are, obviously. Thank you. What do we got? Sure? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was great. Perfect, perfect, perfect. You have nothing to fear. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Yeah, God's much greater than we are, obviously. And when we approach God, we should do so with lost in wonder, love, and praise. Analogy is, you know, when you ever have gone to the Grand Canyon, that's how we view God. Or You've been to Yosemite, El Capitan, or closer to home, Grandfather Mountain. Or going out on a moonless night, seeing the stars and the sky and seeing the vastness of the universe. And knowing that that one who is greater than all those galaxies in the night sky cares about you, knows you, and loves you.
as a friend. Yeah, that's what grace, this sanctifying grace does. It transforms a relationship of fear into a relationship of trust and love and removes those things that keep us from reflecting the love of God to the glory of God in this world. You've heard me talk about that wild dog that we've adopted, Rosie. A few weeks ago, I showed you my wife's favorite Christmas gift, which was a pair of lounging pajamas with pictures of Rosie all over it. She still loves it. She, you know, she's had hip surgery recently. She's been wearing those pants. She just loves it and because it has this dog on it, Rosie. And she is an interesting dog, no doubt about it. She's a great great dog. But let me tell your story a little bit. We adopted her from a rescue in West Jefferson as a puppy a little over three months old. And she was kind of nervous around us. And particularly around men, and I, I am a male. Uh, and so she was ner- nervous around me. In fact, anyone that has been to the house, and some of y'all have been, know that if you're a man, she, she still is a little nervous around you. But through some training and through some uh, tender loving care, she's not as nervous anymore. But this lady that's helped train us and train her has said that, you know what, I can tell that as a young dog, Rosie was abused. Yeah, she was abused probably by a man. And she's fearful around men. And so what we've had to do is to love on her, and train her in the way of grace and love so that, well, she no longer, at least with me, is not afraid. And here's what I get every night when I come home. Sam? Rosie is walking really home. Every night. That's her greeting to me. <laughs> Every night, I come home. She's been trained, you see, to not fear. She's not skittish anymore. And that's what the way of grace is all about, what God is doing in our lives through this grace we call sanctifying grace. It is removing the skittishness of our fear around him, training us in the way of grace so that we reflect the glory of the love of God in the world. That's what you were born to do, to joyfully, as joyfully as Rosie greets me at home at night, to reflect the glory of the love of God in the world. That's what you're made for. That's what grace does. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.